0: Hey Rockheads, quit winding your G-string and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 511 with guest Scott Hunter, recorded live Tuesday, December 15th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com And now, the man who ran out of spackle and found a new use for marshmallows in the same day, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much and welcome back to
1: .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here with you again. Yes, sir. One more time. Here we oh, go. Yes. What's today? Thursday or Tuesday. Tuesday. It's Tuesday. That means it's it's technical day. It's work day. It's work day. We get work done. So uh, let's just get into Better Know Framework. Speaking of work. Excellent. frameworks <laughs> To be exact. Nice. I'm in a small talky mood today, I guess. So, uh, what do you kn- got? As you know, Better Know Framework is where I shine a little light on a deep, dark corner of the .NET Framework. And we've been talking about .NET 4 lately. Uh, Because there's lots of new stuff to cover. Sorted set of T in system.collections.generic. Huh. Yeah. All it is is it maintains the sorted order as elements are inserted and deleted without affecting performance. Duplicate elements are not allowed. Okay. That's it. That's simple. Yeah. But cool. There it is. There you go. We've had sorted lists and things. This is, uh, it's just more performant.
2: It's so just a faster way to go about it.
1: Faster, better, faster, stronger. Ah, it's the bionic version. I, I knew you lists. would get that reference. <laughs> I didn't even have to say Oscar <laughs> Goldman or Lee Majors. You knew. They didn't have to
2: say any of those you things, though. You knew exactly what I was talking yeah. <laughs> That stuff's so old now, my friends. so old, that most of our listeners are like, what are they going I know,
1: about? they have no idea. All right, well... uh Who's talking to us today, Richard?
2: Uh, I got a. I dipped into some older email uh, for a thank you message. Uh, Hello, Carl and Richard. I've been listening to .NET Rocks for over a year now and have yet to be disappointed by the high level of technical content, geek banter, and most importantly, the passion for technology you each share that so clearly comes through in each show. Oh, that's nice. I recently marked the passing of my third year as a professional software developer and soon my eighth year as a programmer. Oddly enough, I listened to the older episodes of .NET Rocks and realized that I grew up as a programmer on the .NET framework. Hmm. .NET Rocks is not just a look at the current state of .NET and Microsoft's bleeding edge projects, but has also become a historical canon of the progression of .NET. Sure has. Before I conclude my email with the customary request for swag, mm-hmm. let me thank you for providing us mere mortals with a window into the life of Titans such as yourself and the great guests that you have had on your show. Where?
1: There's Titans around? Where are the Titans? Look out. Hey, nobody said there was Titans around here. <laughs> going
2: on uh best regards jameson smallwood uh jameson here comes your mug man that was just what i needed today too
1: yeah you've been beat up by your computers today me too actually Yep, it's been a it's been it week here at pop studios uh west and east absolutely yeah i've been uh
2: been battling uh with setting up and migrating to hyper v well I, of course i'll have to admit to this now right if i tell this story yeah i want to hear this story go ahead So four years ago, four years ago now, I'm afraid to admit, I was getting ready to migrate a P3-based server to a P4-based server for Exchange, and I actually took the motherboard, power supply, and hard drive out of the chassis so that I could reuse the chassis with new hardware, and I put the motherboard, the hard drive, and the power supply on a towel and stuck it back (laughs) in my server closet because, hey, I still wanted to have email.
1: (laughs) It's a towel
2: computer. I's been on the towel ever since. I turned it off this past weekend, so it lived on a towel for four years. Did
1: the hard drive melt down when? No, it it
2: held together. Ran continuously for four years. I'm really, I just dodged a bullet. I just got lucky. There's nothing more to it than that. But uh, the way I actually got off that machine was to use System Center Virtual Machine Manager to do a physical to virtual conversion. So it literally sucked a copy of the computer. Off that drive into Hyper-V and just kicked it off in there and the old hardware just shut off. That is amazing. And it, I literally, all I did was say, do it to
1: that machine, put it here, go. And three hours later, it was done. Now I've been working on Hyper-V too. I got a machine here with, with Hyper-V and I've been trying to migrate our SQL server. I can't use that tool because of, aside from the SQL server, the rest of that machine is shit. It's a train wreck. It's just a train wreck, and I do not want to migrate the garbage along with the nuggets of goodness. So I really have to do it manually, and that's been oh so fun. Awesome. Yeah. Well, let's introduce Scott. Uh, Scott Hunter is our guest today. He's been at Microsoft on the ASP.NET team as a senior program manager for the past two years, focusing on data, web forms, and MVC. He's worked on dynamic data, data control enhancements, CSS and markup improvements and the model driven validation story across both web forms and MVC. Prior to working at Microsoft, he spent the past couple of years building intranet websites for managing the oil fields for large oil firms in California. His first programming experience was working for a startup in California called Mustang Software Bulletin Board Systems in Turbo Pascal. I remember Mustang. Oh, DBS. my goodness gracious. <laughs> <laughs> I ran a Mustang BBS as a matter Did of you fact. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I I I, I special I was the sysop man. I was the guy who gets woken up in the middle of the night to <laughs> Too funny. Wow. That's going back.
3: The BBS stuff is 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 quite funny, especially considering that you know we wrote those those BBSs in Turbo Pascal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which was which was authored by Anders yeah, right. It's Microsoft building C Sharp for .NET.
1: You just can't get away from Anders.
3: So I, I can't get away from Anders. And back in those back in those days when we built the BBSs, we used to go up to uh, Scotts Valley once a year. We were one of the, the uh, one of Borland's big customers, and we would go up and and uh, you know do an MVP kind of thing with with uh, Anders uh, at his house um, every year. Too so, funny!
2: That's awesome.
3: Yeah, no kidding.
2: And do you, do you see Anders? I mean, Microsoft's such a big company. Do you see him at all anymore?
3: Um, I, I don't see him mainly because he's in Building Forty One, and I'm in Building Forty Two. So yeah. ASP Nets over in, in uh, Building Forty Two, and the C Sharp team is over in Forty One. So There's... the only chances I, ha- I have of seeing Anders are just if I uh, happen to be over there, or I'm in some meeting that uh, you know where both of our technologies kind of you know come together. Interesting, yeah. And Of course, that's only one building removed. It ought to be pretty close. Hmm. Yeah, it's not too far. It's just uh, just about a five minute walk across the street. It's much better than going down to like 35, which is where SQL Server's at, which is uh, <laughs> ah. uh, quite quite a bit of ways across campus. So, oh man. So
1: we're talking about what's new in ASP.NET four, and uh, man, there's a whole bunch of new stuff. Where do we start?
3: I was going to say it's it's really tough just to figure out where to start because there's so much stuff we've done in .NET four. Um, well,
1: and it's
2: almost overwhelming in the sense that. Plus, I mean, Silverlight seems to be a big deal, and and uh, we've got gotten- NBC
1: and Ajax and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, NBC, the-
2: Ajax, I mean all these different things. But if we get back to good old-fashioned ASP.net, sort of the fundamental stuff, there's big
1: improvements there too. Caching. What's new in caching?
3: Uh, what's new in caching? So for caching, what, we, what we've what we done is uh, we've always had requests for doing things like uh, cache extensibility. And what, what I mean by that is uh, a great example is ASP, core at ASP.NET has got this great feature, which is uh, output caching. Um, one of the limits of output caching today is obviously it's it's storing its caching stuff on your, your local machine. If you want to actually go deploy a, a large website on a, on a web farm or something like that, you you really need some way to uh, put some, ca- some kind of different back end on, on caching. Hmm. Uh, so we've actually got cache extensibility in .NET 4, which means for the first time there's now a provider model associated with all of that, um, and you can write your own provider. Uh, when we were at, uh, the PDC in November, we actually showed some demos, uh, of some prototype code that we, uh, we hope to have out on, like, CodePlex sometime after .NET 4 ships. Um, this shows basically replacing the output caching in ASP.NET with Velocity. Um, which is a, a great, you know, yeah. server farm solution for doing output caching. So you can
1: um, provide a different cache uh, provider based on the page or based on any kind of logic that you want. Essentially, it's
3: just based, it's, it's an implementation thing. So it's it's just kind of like the other providers we have. You know, we have providers for like membership providers for profile stuff like that. What you'll do is you'll in in web config you'll basically uh, configure your cache provider, and that will basically replace your cache provider for the for the application.
1: Hmm. And then there's an overridable get output cache provider name where you can. Uh, inspect the, the, the request. So there's exactly just, yeah,
3: great stuff. There's <laughs> tons of stuff. And, and something else we did too is, is one of the, one of the things we did as part of .NET 4 was, uh, we broke the framework into two, two, two frameworks. There's a client framework and a server framework. And, uh, part of that, we actually moved our caching system, um, out of ASP net into the client framework. um, that's not fully complete in .NET 4 because, uh, basically, um, we still have our own implementation of that in, in, the, in, in ASP.NET, but in the long term, there'll be one uh, global caching API um, that's shared by everybody. So, ASP.NET is not the only people that actually want to use uh, a cache mechanism like we have in ASP.NET, and so we found that people that were writing client apps wanted to use caching as well. And that's why we kind of uh, are in the process, which started in .NET 4, of decoupling that from ASP.NET and making that just a core uh, client-side framework component.
1: Client-side caching. But that's different from page caching, of course. That that is completely
3: different from page caching. In this case, I'm talking of, you know, on your page saying, uh, you know, cache.add, whatever. And being able to give it lifetime and... And really some of the power behind that caching is, especially when you start using some of the dependencies, like the SQL dependencies, and, and can say, hey, I want to stick something, even even a client app, if it's a, you know, if you're in, a, in an enterprise and it's actually talking to a database, it might want to actually go stick some data into into a cache that's going to get blown away as soon as, uh, you know, the table in the database is updated.
1: That's so. very cool.
2: And, and this is not, you're not talking about browser caching here, right? You're talking about actually here's a glob of data. I want you to keep it on the browser so I can reference it. I'm not
3: talking about the I'm not talking about the browser at all. I'm now talking about page the 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 cache object that we have on the page model inside of ASP.NET. Oh, okay. So today, you know, what I can do is I can say cache dot add. I can give it some data. I can give it a, a how long I want that data to live in that cache. Mm-hmm. I can right. give it a, a callback to be called when it's removed from the cache. But I'm also allowed to give it a, a series of dependencies. Uh, you know, this
1: right.
2: this has
3: actually existed uh, since uh, .NET yeah, two. This is old stuff. Um, and you yeah, can also get an old
1: event uh, notification when one of those dependencies goes out of scope.
3: That's correct. Yeah. And one of our changes, as I said, was we basically we're moving that uh, that that used to be just tied directly to ASP.NET, hmm. and we actually that, that that has actually been moved completely out of ASP.NET, and there's now that caching system actually exists as a as a .NET four component. As part of the .NET framework. Uh, and, okay, and,
2: I see what you're talking yeah, about. Makes sense. Uh, you know, another element that I've recently read about on ASP.NET 4, which ties right into this, is the ability to preload cache items now with, uh, with auto start.
3: Yeah. So auto, auto start is something new that we, we've added. That uh, And in fact, I can actually go into a few de- details of stuff that I don't think we've even published yet. Uh, but auto, auto start is, is, is a new mechanism where you can basically say, I want the ability to pre warm my application. So um, before my application even comes up, um, I want to give it uh, give an interface and i can I can do some stuff in config and when that happens my application is going to fire up right away and get the chance to you know preload all of its cache objects and stuff like that before it's ever called
2: right because um, the alternative is you you the first user gets this punishment right of hitting all those things that then have to populate their caches
3: exactly mm. and and imagine that on a on a really large website where you where you really really want to cache a lot of stuff yep. i mean uh, you could actually have a, a 15, 20, 30-second delay as you go out to the database and query things like postal code data, country data, stuff, state data, stuff like that, to go stick in a bunch of caches. Uh, and the auto-start allows you to actually have an entry point where um, that stuff gets called and, and pre-done before the app even gets hit the first time, which I think is, is huge. Uh,
2: Why did it take four versions to get this?
3: <laughs> I have no no idea.
2: Yeah. Thanks, uh, Richard. It, it,
3: well, i got to <laughs> tell welcome. you the crazy stuff yeah.
2: we've written to do this, essentially. Basically, writing a tool that yeah. on the startup of this server would fire off a script that would hit a bunch of pages to get the caches loaded.
3: Yeah. Well, we've- the, 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 the big reason that that kind of stuff happens is, is because of what we're allowed to change in, in various flavors of the framework. So um, if, you, if you really think about it, the, the last framework release, .NET 4, .NET 4 is really the first framework release since .NET 2.0. Where we've had the ability to go in and really touch core components, right? So basically, in the in the case of three 3.0 O and three five, pretty much most of the changes were additive. So we didn't get a chance to go and and change low level system internals. And so .NET four is the first first chance we've actually had in a long time to go and and dig into the low level system internals and and make some of these you know these, these kind of changes. That's why you, that's why you see a lot of the stuff we did in Web Forms. Um, you know, you didn't see that in three 3.0 O or three five because uh, we, we called uh, uh, those, those bits were called red bits in the in three five time frame, meaning that we weren't allowed to touch them.
1: You don't have to apologize to me for making a great feature. <laughs> Thanks. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, how about session compression? I just wanted to say so, that. I, I just <laughs> that. session compression.
3: I'd love to have my session compressed, don't you?
1: Yeah, yeah, especially after a hard day's work, you know.
3: So, so se- session compression is basically when you're using, uh, you're not using the inproc session provider. So by default, ASP.NET ships with an inproc session provider, um, which works great if you're using one machine. But if your if your website is actually you know using multiple machines or or multiple app domains on a single machine, um, you need to store session data somewhere uh, where a request from one machine can get it, and then a request from another machine can get it. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the optimizations that we made in, in .NET 4 was in the case of actually using our our SQL Server session provider. Um, we now compress the data a lot more before it actually gets put into the SQL Server. So we're basically passing less data around, uh, you know, with a much, you know, definitely gonna increase your throughput of your of your website. Nice.
2: You know, sessions one of those pet peeves of mine. I think Scott Hanselman and I are on the same page on this. That we've got I've gotten in the habit now of whenever I set up a new dev rig of defaulting. My base configuration is now out of process session on state server on the same box. So there's still additional dependencies there, but just getting into the habit of dealing with out-of-process session from the beginning of the project.
3: I, I actually think that's a great development process. I think one of the things that people don't realize until too late, and and I got bit with this myself uh, as an early .NET developer uh, in the in the time frame timeframe, um, what you do is you don't realize that when you're using the in-proc session state, you can basically put anything in there. Anything, any yeah. object you have that will just go in there. And then one day, you go, oh, "I want to scale my my application up, so I'm going to suddenly use two web servers." And you go mm-hmm. and flip the out-of-proc session state on, and your app fails immediately because basically, we can only store something that's serializable right. into the into the SQL Server. And uh, so, you know, by default, you could just be copying reference objects and not really caring. And suddenly, you throw the switch. And it just doesn't work. So I, I would actually recommend, if you're building ASP.NET websites and you ever think you're going to scale off of one box, you, your, your development mantra should be always be out of state in proc, you know, out of state on the same box, um, just so whenever you want to switch that throw that switch, um, you're not going to find any any hiccups.
2: Right. Well, the other big effect I found on busy servers is that. Because the session data is persistent from request to request, it impacts garbage collection. It impacts performance of the machine as a whole. When your session data isn't too, too big and you start even just putting on a state server on the same machine so it's outside of the .NET heap, you can actually significantly improve the throughput of the web server.
3: Yeah, well, I would actually argue if you're running into those issues, maybe you're putting too much stuff in session in the, in the first place. Well, that's too. the I usual thing, yeah. So uh, this
2: is a question I throw at anybody who deals with this, so maybe you would even want to comment. What's your preferred size of a session object? How big?
3: I, I, I look at it from the standpoint of how many users I think are going to hit my website. Right. So if, if I think I'm going to have 1,000 users, then, you know, uh, a, a, a K or two or a couple K is not too bad. If I'm going to have a million users, then, you know, I want to keep it really, really small. So, oh. um you know, I, I'm kind of of the, of the opinion of keeping it very small. So in, in, in most of the websites that I've developed uh, outside of Microsoft, we kept Session State, um, for the most part, probably um, no more than 100 or two or 300 bytes per user. And the-, uh, the, only time, the only time that we actually broke that philosophy was on the administration part of the site because uh-huh. we knew less people were going to be there. Um, at that point, we got a little heavier, so we actually might throw images and stuff like that. So if you're actually on a page and editing images and stuff, uh, we might actually show throw the uh, the images in there. I, I want to throw one more point out there as well, that um, especially when you're building an external-facing site, uh, you know, the, one of the negatives of Session is, and, I, and I've run into this exact problem building websites, is, uh, for example, let's say you're building a, a page that allows somebody to submit a, a blog post. Um and the person loads the page up, starts working on the blog post, and goes to lunch and comes back. And in that time frame, their session state uh, has timed out. That's a that's a uh, value you can control in configuration on how long uh, ASP.NET keeps that session that session data before it decides that you're gone. Uh, that that stuff times out. The user comes back and they press save, uh, and the page gives them an error or uh, just you know refreshes and all their data is gone. Um, so I I think if you're building Anytime I'm building a site, I like to think of a session around those standpoints as well. What can I do to make sure that doesn't happen? Uh, that if you're if you're on a page that's a critical page, uh, and you come back a couple hours later, uh, you're not going to get you know thrown into a broke state. And some of that could be just identifying those pages and actually storing in page state in those particular cases enough information to allow you to finish the request if they come back and press the, the send button. The other alternative was what you see bank sites do all the time is to um, run some script on the page. It basically, you know, throws a warning up to the user mm. um, saying, "Hey, you're you've got ten minutes left before you're gonna, you know, your lose sessions your session's gonna expire,
1: or goes and pings some crazy uh, something on the website just to keep it alive every five minutes or so." But um, I've
3: I, I've done that as well. I've done the I've done the keep alive as well, where yeah. you actually just have the the page actually make a call back to to a dummy page on the website.
1: Yeah, don't kill my session. You know, as long as we're talking about how big should a session be. That really brings up a whole boatload of, of fundamental skills that developers need to have in order to determine that. Because, you know, let's say you're looking at a, um, oh, I don't know, um, an array of structures or something like that versus a large graphic versus, um, you know, a, a class, an object that has many levels and many connections to other objects. You may think to yourself, well, this is just a reference object type you know this is just pointer to a pointer to a list of pointers so i can throw that in there that's not going to take up much memory but what you're essentially doing is now keeping that object for for your particular thread alive on the heap so it's not just the data that goes into session it's the data that that data references all the way down the line so
3: yeah we would call that the whole graph
1: the whole graph
3: the whole graph of objects. Each object that relates to itself. So if you've got a person and a person's got an address and address has got you know, whatever it's it all down the line just gets gets shoved in there.
1: Right. And so you gotta know how to calculate that. You know, maybe using some performance counters or
2: although with the kind of numbers you're throwing out, Scott, about just a few K at most for a session object, that pretty much precludes putting any objects in the session object.
3: Yeah, I actually, I actually try. I try not to put objects in the, in the in the session myself. I actually just try to put enough information that I could go reload something from the database if I if I yeah, wanted to, like a key
1: right. or a, or something like that.
3: Exactly. I I'll throw some keys and some stuff like that. So what what's common for me? What I'll do is I'll, I'll I'll go find things that my website shows all the time. And so you know, for example, I might have a a customer record that has like you know eighty fields in it. But the reality is. Ninety-nine percent of the time on the on the website, I show the first name and the last name um, of right. the person that the customer record is associated with. I put that in session, um, and so I basically have enough to make most of my pages work. And the pages that need more go to the database. The Databases are fast enough now that uh, right. You know.
1: Yeah. So as long as we're talking about the things that can bite you in uh, ASP.NET, there's some new improvements for Vue state as well, right?
3: Yeah. The, you know, view state is obviously one of the, you know, one of the things. If you're a long-term ASP.NET net person, you know, it's the, you know, you hate it, you love it.
2: We've all been bitten by it, though.
3: <laughs> you, you get bit by it, and 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 unfortunately, you get bit by it because the, you know, back when ASP.NET was first created, the kind of the, the the idea was we don't want to have to have people worry about how to persist this stuff. You know, web pages are stateless, meaning that you know nothing is persisted between one request to the next request. And your solutions for solving the statelessness are to either put it in view state, which is in in the page, put it in session state, put it in the URL, or put it in a cookie. Um, and I think our default was at the at the time we first built ASP.NET. You know, there weren't a lot of web programmers, and so we kind of did this stuff automatically for you. Right. Um, um, to the point where it was too much, where you know everything was everything was put into view state, and uh, view state was on by default, and so you get a heavy page, and you didn't even you didn't even try uh to make a heavy page. And so the change we're making in .net 4 is ViewState's always had an opt out model, which means your page starts off with View state being totally enabled um, and what you can do is you can go to each control on the page and disable it manually. Um, and I've done this before when I have built websites that's kind of what we do is we the first thing we do is we go through each page and we'll turn off ViewState for every single thing on the page and then We'll figure out what things need to keep some state and we'll turn it on selectively for just the two or three things that need to keep some state. Um, and the change we're making in .NET 4 is to reverse that model. <clears throat> we have a new flag called view state mode. And uh, the view state mode, I can, I can set view state mode on the page to disabled by default. And then I'm in an opt-in model, meaning that everything is turned off by default and I can just go in and, and enable manually on any particular control to turn it on, and I think that's the better model: is to say, um, let's turn it off by default and go figure out where you want the state to persist and turn it back on. We even we even considered for .NET four projects making that the default, but we, mm. we didn't because it's it's been around. We've been around for so long. We think right. that would just you know cause people to
1: widespread panic.
3: Widespread panic, or you, you go <laughs> look and find resources on the web and and. It doesn't jive at all with what you know what your project actually actually is doing. So
1: plus, a lot of feel people would feel really stupid when they go, you know, oh my god, the sky is falling, nothing works, nothing sticking. Oh,
3: just, just switch this flag. Oh, oh okay, yeah. And, and, I'm and, such and that's an another idiot. thing that with, with that view state flag, that's even the current view state flag that that really confuses people is is you know the view state um, is kind of based on its on its parent container. If you turn it off on a parent, then mm-hmm. you can't turn it on on something inside that parent. Right. right. So if I, have, if I have a panel, and inside my panel I put three buttons, if I disable view state on the panel, I can't turn it back on on the button anyways. Because uh, once I've told the panel not to have view state, it basically, all of, its, all of its children inherit that, whether they have the enabled view state equals true or false on them anyways. And that's something else that this new view state mode, uh, it doesn't adhere to that anymore. So basically with view state mode, um, I can disable it at the page level and even though my panel has it technically off at that point, I, could, I can still enable it on a, on a button inside that panel.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the RAD control suite for Silverlight. Are you already playing with Silverlight 3? Then you might have started using .NET RIA services, rich Internet application services, which make data operations a whole lot easier, especially for a line of business applications. So check it out. Our friends at Telerik are again ahead in the game, tapping on the new benefits of Silverlight 3. Their RAD control suite for Silverlight now fully supports .NET RIA services and domain data source. So if you're wondering what's in it for you, the answer is pretty straightforward. You get completely codeless binding to RIA services, impressive validation support on the client and on the server. Your customer will also be pleased to sort, filter, and page data much faster as all data operations are now server-side. Besides, the suite also offers out-of-browser support, and as you might already have heard, the first commercial 3D chart. Check out the Telerik Silverlight suite at telerik.com slash silverlight. Don't forget to say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. Hey, uh, I have an iPhone, and I'm, you know, not ashamed to admit it. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I'll go to an ASP.NET website and. It just doesn't look as good on the iPhone, and you know what I mean. Just by formatting, kind of gets messed up. And I remember, I think it was in .NET 2.0 where you guys did away with the uh, web, the mobile website, and then just said, "Well, all websites will be mobile websites. They'll just adapt to whatever mobile device you have." Uh, is there any better support for that in ASP.NET Four?
3: Yeah, that that the area you, you just brought up kind of brings up a lot of points of, of some areas that we changed. So, let me first off talk about how we detect uh, devices. So, we, we have this notion in, in ASP.NET of something called a browser cap file. And the browser cap file is where we uh, keep a list of, you know, all the browsers that we are, we're aware of and some of the capabilities that they all have. Um, one of the things that we did in .NET 4 was we completely went through the browser cap file and rejiggered the file. Um, the main reason we did this was because... The file, as you said, has been around. I mean, we've we've added we added mobile support a long time ago, and when we added mobile support, there were no iPhones, uh, there were no Windows mobile phones, there were there was no Android phones. Um, Basically, at that point, most most of the mobile phones used used a technology called WAP, um, which was a a simpler way of of writing web pages (laughs) for these legacy phones.
1: That was the precursor to Plop.
3: Actually, if you're building WAP websites, you deserve a plop at, at this point. So
2: I remember WAP as an acronym for Weak Ass Protocol, but that's just me.
3: <laughs> but the, the funny thing is, that, go look at the browser cap file that ships with .NET two or .NET three five. Right, and you're going to find you're you're going to find phones that have been in landfills for probably a decade by now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the downside of that model: is that that's a long time ago now. Yeah.
3: Right, so so we did a couple things in .NET four. The, the first thing is, as I said, we we went and redid browser caps, and so we got rid of all those old devices. Right, um, that's,
1: that's why my mother that. called me last week.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: your fault. <laughs> She's trying to save money by using these old phones, and now you went and took it out.
3: <laughs> so we we took out all the all the config entries for for those things, and we basically. At the same time, refresh it to know about all the, the known devices today and the known browsers today. So, you know, obviously Safari, Chrome, Firefox, IE, uh, Opera, those are the core browsers that live in the browser cap file now. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we got rid of all the, all the old junk.
2: Well, and for the most part, mobile devices just have small screens but full-bore
3: browsers, right? right. That's well, that's correct. I mean, I, I would argue today that, that building a mobile web application today you know, we expect, as a web developer, I would expect the, the mobile device to actually have a browser that's equivalent to a desktop browser. And all I'm really going to do is I'm going to um, have some logic to detect that device. Right. And I'm going to take the user to a view that fits their screen a little better than it would be if they get the, the full rich environment. But but at the same time, if, you know, as we're talking to developers, I would say, if you're going to do that, make sure you put a link on your page that allows somebody to see mm. the, the full version of the site as well. Because sometimes, right. you know, even on, I, I have an iPhone as well. And I go to a site like ESPN.com, and I get frustrated because I don't want the mobile version. I mean, right. the, 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 thing, the thing about my phone is it's it's quite quite good at showing the the, the yeah. full version. We can zoom and in so, and
1: see the full versions, you know. Yeah.
3: So so we uh, um, you know did the redid the browser caps, and you know my advice to somebody building building mobile applications today is it's not about uh, you know building a different experience now. It's just mainly just saying hey. I'm going to build some logic in my website that looks at the the, the type of uh, browser that's coming through, and I might send somebody to a, a, a version of my site or a part of my site that has some views that are that are uh, be- that would better fit that form factor, right. and still give the option to go back to the full version for people that that, that uh, want to see the the full version. Um, I'll call out one more thing too: is we technically, um, you know, obsoleted all the the mobile controls and stuff in, in .NET 4 as well, so. All the web stuff that we were talking about earlier.
1: Okay. Uh, there's routing now in ASP.NET Four. We had routing before in you have part of MVC One and MVC. What's is there anything different in routing now?
3: Page routing. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a, there's a couple things that are different. So so first off, we shipped routing in .NET Three Five SP One to support uh, MVC and dynamic data, and we actually would have loved to have actually put support in for Web Forms for the versioning reasons I was saying before that was a framework release where we weren't allowed to touch a core asp.net. So, right. what we actually what we've actually done in .net 4 is we actually moved routing directly into system web. So nice. it's actually type forwarded into system web and it's now a core feature of web forms. And there's a couple benefits that you get as a web form developer first off, um, the big thing when we talk about routing is, you know, why why do you want to do routing? And, you know, in the, in the past when people build websites, um, you know, you would have URLs that would that would typically look like, you know, Products slash uh, category uh, or product product at ASPX dollar sign uh, category ID equals one, two, three, four, five. Right. Um,
1: Ampersand this equals that and this equals
3: that. And
2: yeah, the whole query string thing, right?
3: The whole the whole the whole query string thing. And that's bad for a couple of reasons. Um, First off, you know, when uh, the search engines come to your website. You know, category ID equals one, two, three, four, five doesn't mean much to them. Nope. So they're not going to help your page out at all um, with with that with that ID. Um, you're much better off doing kind of what the newer model is, which is uh, products slash beverages, uh, right. where basically you've, you've you've taken the category and phased it directly into the URL. Um, and so, if you're a web form developer. Um, Making routing a first-class citizen inside of WebForms allows you now to build the same kind of thing you could have built with MVC or Dynamic Data before, which is those exact kinds of URLs. And, and we've done the, the support all the way around. So if, if you if you look at data source controls, they now have the ability to have as part of their parameter collections what we call a, a route parameter. This allows my my data source control in a WebForm application to actually uh, take a value from the route and make that as part of the query.
2: Right. So, and I'm thinking. Right away, my thought is, I want to retrofit this into an existing app, and it sounds like it would just work because it just rebuilds them as it, I'm going to still find them in the query string object, right? You
3: you would actually you wouldn't find them in the query string object. You're gonna you're gonna find now that we have uh, uh, route value, uh, route values are our first class citizens on the page. So what oh, you would okay. do is you you would actually go to the on your page you would say show me the route value for category, and that's going to return you the value from the from the route.
2: Nice. Okay. Easy. But it does mean you do have to make some coding changes if you want to use routing.
3: Yeah, you're going to make some coding changes because obviously uh, the, the routing, routing requires a couple things. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to create some kind of, in your global ASAX, you're going to go register your routes. So somewhere you're going to say that I want product, percent, uh, product slash uh, squiggly category squiggly to map to my product aspx page. And then you're going to give it the, the list of optional parameters, and you can potentially give them the, the, the default values for that as well. Um, and you're going to want to you're going to put that in global asax. And then you're going to, you know, change your page today where it's going and grabbing values from the query string. Uh, you're going to then grab them from the val- route value collection instead of from the query string. So a couple changes uh, you're going to have to make. And, and then also you could make a, ch- a change if you're doing if you're using data source controls. They might be using a, a query string parameter uh, in your data source control, and you would change that to a route parameter. Um, so mainly, it's just a, a, a little bit of plumbing change, and you know you're using routes. And even the, even the MVC crowd is going to get some some benefits to that because we're we're going we have things now that are first class citizens uh, in the in the page, which are things like uh, uh, redirect to route.
1: Hmm. Okay. Uh there's some new stuff in ASP.NET 4 for dealing with client IDs when you have uh client script that references HTML elements that are rendered for server controls. Dealing with those IDs isn't has never been easy. And now I guess there's some new mapping I guess that allows you to access those things and set them.
3: Yeah, there's there's a uh, there's a new what we call we call it client ID mode. So, you know, obviously client IDs have probably been one of the things that people we, we probably get the most complaints about I would think view state and client ID are, are probably the two things we get the most complaints about mm-hmm. client ID is once again when ASP.NET was first created the idea was uh, to have it kind of manage things and and not let you get your, yourself in a state where you have two controls on a page or, or two items on a page that have the same ID right and so we do some magic where we go and, and dynamically create an ID at runtime for you um, but which was fine probably back when we first started doing this stuff but you know, as we move forward, and and JavaScript and AJAX have have really gotten more powerful, and and the browsers have gained a lot more functionality in those areas. You know, a lot of people are writing a lot more client script today than they were in the past. And you know, one of the negatives of the auto-generated client IDs is it's kind of hard to write JavaScript against those things because you don't know what that ID is going to be. Right. Um, there's there's a whole pile of workarounds that that ASP.NET developers you know use today to to, to solve that, but now uh, with client ID mode, uh, you're given a couple of choices. The, first off, the new choice that we have is what we call client ID mode equals predictable. Really? It, yes. And 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 what that tries to do is that tries to make it where if you're a developer and you're looking at your page, you could you could guess what the client ID would be.
1: Just because the last one was ten, the next one's got to be eleven.
3: Well, more more to the notion of this. Let's say I've got a uh, a panel called uh, Panel Richard, and inside of Panel Richard, I've got a button called uh, Button Carl. So
1: we're the new Foo Bar, Richard. Nice,
3: yeah. You're the new Foo Bar. We're the new Foo Bar. What, <laughs> what, what we want to make what we want to make sure now is is that when you look at that, you, you, your your brain's going to say that should it should be the the name of the panel uh, followed by the name of the of the control inside the panel. That should be my client ID. Oh, I see. And that's what Predictable does. Predictable tries to get rid of all the CTL zero zero jump. Oh. We kind of stick in in a few places yes. and just say I can guess what the client ID is going to be because I can look at the container, 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 control, and that's what my my client ID should be by default. Is nice. basically is basically that. Thanks. I got a little um, tear,
1: man. Yeah, that's brought a tear to my eye as well.
3: So uh, awesome. you can always go back to the auto ID, which is what we do in uh, today, and then finally there's static. And if I set client ID mode on on a button to static, that basically means whatever I specify in the ID is the client ID. Hmm. Um, I can shoot myself in the foot with that. If I put two buttons on the on the page, one called button one, one called button one, another mm-hmm. one called button one, you know, obviously at that point you're gonna have a problem when the page renders because you have uh two controls with the exact same ID. Just don't call um, for
1: support. You'll get a dope
3: slap. Exactly. You get yep. a dope slap for that. It's like dope.
2: Yep. But at the same time, it is, you know, this has been the big complaint is I set my IDs myself and you redid them on me. Right.
3: Correct. And so now so. we were, for, you know, for the first time, we're offering you the ability to set them yourself. And when you do, we're not going to touch them at all.
1: If you really yeah. want to. Okay.
3: So I, I think what you're going to find is, and most of the demos that we've actually built when we were writing samples for things like PDC and and uh, dev connections and stuff we found most of the samples that we built, what we did is we'd actually set the page, uh, leave the page at the default, which is predictable. And then inside of our list view or whatever, we would go find the one or two things that we want to add, like watermarks to with jQuery, and we would uh, go set those to static and then uh, hook the jQuery up to the uh, to that uh, ID statically. So um, that's kind of what we think is, is would be the norm now, is to kind of stick with predictable and then turn static on, um, at the lowest level, when you want full control,
1: you mentioned the list view control. There's um, some new enhancements in that, and as well, um, some new controls and some new en- enhancements to existing controls. Maybe we should talk about some of those.
3: Yeah, let me let me talk about when if we talk about controls. Let's talk about um, one of the, the main themes that we try to do in, in .NET four, which was uh, we try to give people more control. One of the things you already you already heard on the, during as we talked today we've given more control over view state. Mm-hmm. Now we've talked about giving more control over client ID. Um, the final kind of thing of, uh, we've also talked about uh, routing as well, giving more control over URLs. So kind of the theme of this release is giving, especially the web form developer, more control of, of everything. If
2: you're a control we've free. We, we've t-
3: taken that even further all the way to to the control levels. And I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, the reason that people want more control is now also uh, when you start styling things hmm. um you don't want us to be like emitting markup that uh, you didn't ask for. Mm. And so one of the one of the big pushes we did in .net4 as well which which was trying to clean up the markup that some of our controls put out put in. So we have a new directive in inside of uh web.config it's on by default in, in a .net4 project. Um if you migrate a .net4 project to 4.0, we'll leave it set to 3.5 um for compatibility versions. This new flag is called control rendering compatibility version. Wow. Um, and what this, what this allows us to do is basically have a switch saying we can change the, the formatting that a particular version of the framework will emit um, when you use stuff in the framework. Um, the, the main reason we want to do this is to solve the exact problem that I was just mentioning. So um, one of the goals in .NET 4 was to go and uh, there was a couple of attributes that we used to stick on stuff which nobody asked for. If you if you create a uh, a grid view or a, or an ASP colon table, you'll find that there's a border equal zero associated with that, and there's there's no way to turn that off. Um, we even put the border equal zero on on an image tag, and so one of the things that'll happen is when you when you switch to the 4.0 rendering compatibility mode, um, all that junk that we used to emit um, without you asking for it just disappears. That goes all the way down to inline styles on validation controls. Validation controls. Um, even if you just put it on the page and just gave it an error message, you would have had an inline style making it red. Yep. Um, you, you didn't ask for that. You just, you just got that. So the point of this switch is um, it turns off all of that goop that we do uh, by default.
1: In case you want to do it yourself.
3: You want to do it well, yourself. Where
2: I've run into issues with this is working with quote unquote real web designers, guys who live and breathe CSS right. and they just consider ASP.net css intolerant right you know and and it it was just a battle and they they, and their frustration was that they got a set of tools they were used to using with css and they would just try and apply that to an asp.net page and you know all hell would break loose really
3: i've done it real world myself i've actually built those built those pages and gave them to a designer and they said uh replace this attribute with this attribute this attribute this attribute and i'm like um yeah i I can't i can't turn that off
2: yeah yeah (laughs) i can't do that sorry
3: for the most part, that's not going to be a problem. We we, uh, we we addressed many of the of the controls. I mean, we there there's some uh, controls we didn't get to. Things like the calendar control, we didn't think that was a, a control that people were most people were using. So we we tried to focus on the on on the controls we thought most people were using and and remove as much of that, that as possible. And and in the cases that we weren't able to fix the controls, um, we have a couple of what we call composite controls, and these are. These are the fancier controls, like a a login control or a create user wizard, password recovery, um, password recovery things like that. These these controls are are more complicated because they have like lots of sub controls in them. That's why we call them a a composite control. And Mm. and uh, what we did for those controls was some of those controls already had a template where you could define your own HTML. And the negative of that is you're going perfect. Yeah, I got this great template. I'll I'll go create my uh, form view and I'll, I'll set it to, uh, I'll, I'll put my exact template in there and I'll view the page. And I'm like, what the, what the heck is this? I'm, I'm surrounded by a table
1: right.
2: and
3: there's a TR and a TD and then my stuff's inside of that. How, how do I turn that off? And the answer is, uh, before it was, eh.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Sorry. Yeah. Thanks for playing.
3: Sorry. Can't do that. Next. And so, one of the things that we we did in it 4 as well is we put a new flag um, on all those controls that have that scenario, and you can basically tell them to turn off the outer table rendering. Uh, that 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 outer table was only put there because all these controls had these styles that were associated with them, which right. which by the way would create these inline styles that we don't want in the first place. And so the assumption for us is, if I if I'm going to use a templated control, now I can turn off the, that that. Outer table because I'm not expecting to use those inline styles that that outer table supported anyways. I just want to uh, control the template myself and you know fully control the markup. And so, so we have this 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 new render outer table that you can enable or disable on these controls. And the, the final thing we did in that area was we had some controls like the create user wizard, which I kind of laughed. It actually had a template, but it only ge- it only let you template like. 80% of the control, there was still a, 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 par, a few parts of the control that it didn't let you template. So what it would let you do is it would say, here, here's the wizard panel on the left. You can template that. Here's the wizard panel up here. You can template that. And here's the button bar. You can template that. But we're going to hard code all the markup that surrounds all three of those things. Ah. And, and so we went through controls that did that and gave them a layout template very similar to what the ListView control has today. Um, saying now you can put the layout template in, wow. and then all your all your sub templates will uh, show up inside of that that layout template.
1: So I can smell the gears turning in the CSS zealots' heads right now. You know the not the zealots, but the CSS heads, right? The people who are CSS people, and you know who you are. Now the question that I know is on their mind is, well, you got all this great fundamental support for styling and all these controls, and you gave me a lot more control. Is the Visual Studio CSS editor any better in VS 2010?
3: The 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 editor in VS 2010 is better than it was um, in 2008. Um, I can't I can't talk in a lot of details on that because I'm I'm part of the ASP.NET yeah team, I like knew the that. VS team, but I, I do know that that it it is currently up to CS 2.1 standards. Okay. Um, there's a good chance that the rendering you're going to see in design modes and stuff like that are going to be uh, much, much closer to what you're going to see in a production website today.
1: And Probably what people will do is continue using their favorite CSS editor, you know, on the files themselves, and um, now at least they can they they can get in there where they couldn't before.
3: Right. Uh, to me, that's the, the that's thing. That's the is, important thing. Yeah, to me, the important thing is the fact that we've now enabled you to have control of these things. So we're, we've, we've gone through, and, you know, as I said, kind of the theme is we try, try to go through and find all these things that you... You couldn't change before, or we didn't give you control of control of before, and now give you control of. So I, I think .NET four is going to make a lot of people, you know, a lot happier. Uh, when if if you want control of stuff, you're going to you're going to get a lot more control without having to, you know, completely ditch your project and move to MVC if you yep. want, you know, full full control.
2: Yep. Well, Scott, I. When we first talked to you, you were working on Dynamic Data, which then shipped, I think, three five SP one. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, anything happened for Dynamic Data for four zero?
3: Um, lots of stuff for Dynamic Data happened in four zero. So, and and even for, I'll even mention MVC a little bit because uh, we did some, we took a lot of Dynamic Data concept and concepts and moved them into MVC two. So, um, Dynamic Data for for people that haven't ever looked at it before. Um, it was the notion of trying to actually be able to scaffold a website. So if you have a, a link to SQL or any of your framework data model, you could kind of point us to that model, and we would actually kind of build you a scaffolded website. And uh, we gave you a lot of templates and, and ways to, you know, kind of control that scaffolding. Um, but one of the negatives of, of dynamic data in that was that it was a new project type. If I wanted to start a, a dynamic data project and, and get a lot of the benefits of dynamic data, I had to basically start over from scratch, um, you know, for us, that really cut our audience way down. Uh, you know, you had to have a couple of things. First off, we only worked on on uh, we required a data model, so you had to have an ORM data model, either linked to SQL NDG Framework. Uh, we do have a provider model, so there's some third-party ones that we support as well. But uh, you had to have that, and you had to start over with a with a brand new project. And and uh, we didn't get nearly the adoption that we we would have liked to have seen, uh, but because of all those requirements. And so one of the goals in .NET four was to to say, how can we take the best parts of dynamic data and make them available to everybody? And so what we did is we added a new switch called Enable Dynamic Data uh, that you can actually use in any web, web page uh, in a website or a web app. And so here's, here's the, the typical scenario that we, we look at is um, I'm a developer, I'm building a page, and I've got a, a grid view or a form view or a list view or a details view, the, the scenario I'd love to talk about the first is, is the grid view cases. You know, you use this control, and it's a really rich control. It's got the ability to inline edit. It lets you add new records. It lets you uh, delete. You can sort, page, all these things. And so uh, the user experience is they go in, they click edit on a row, they type a bogus entry, uh, you know, they, they go find a date column and type foobar in, and they press update, and they get the yellow screen of death. It's like, Dang the control does all this stuff for me, and then fails. And then as soon as it fails, how much work is it to go fix that stuff? You know, fixing that stuff requires me to then then to go into my, instead of getting all the, the benefits of just having it kind of for free, I've got to go in and, and use what we call template columns and fully templatize uh, all those columns and hand put the validation controls in. And so what this enable dynamic data switch does, I can now take that same page and in my page init i would say gridview1.enable dynamic data uh, and give it like a type type of product for example and with that one line um, you get all the validation will happen automatically this is uh, dynamic data already had the notion of being able to look at your actual object and automatically stick in the validation controls on the fly based on the on the data types and so just with that one line switch that that page that used to give a yellow screen of death will now give you a nice error message and uh, require you to actually fix the input before you actually save the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you kind of get that for free. Um, and all the dynamic data features that we we added, like field templates, field templates is the ability to actually have a template for a particular data type. So I, I can add a field template for say uh, date time under edit. That would be the field template that would be used for editing a date time value. Um, those all exist as well. So I, I can. Then, if I wanted to, I could create that dynamic data directory, create a field template directory, and put my own field templates inside of there and, and customize the markup the same way I could in, in dynamic data. So, But the idea was basically to bring all the validation goodness that dynamic data had uh, and make it work in any website with just a call with a single switch. And that's what we did, uh, one of the big things we did in dynamic data. I'll, I'll briefly skirt and talk about when it comes to the regular dynamic data, the full scaffolding stuff. Um, we went and added a, a bunch more support for entity uh, framework. So we now support many-to-many many relationships in entity framework. We support inheritance uh, in both link to SQL and entity and, and framework, which is really cool. Uh, also, before, if you're using entity framework in the 3.5 time frame, we couldn't detect which was the primary key, and so we actually showed the primary key as an edit- editable field. You had to go and manually annotate your model. Um, we, can, we now can detect that stuff. Um, so... The usability for uh, a regular dynamic data customer is going to get a lot better. Plus, we added a ton of new features. We have this this field template notion that that I was mentioning. We actually added some new field templates for URLs and email addresses. Uh, The many-to-many thing was actually a a field template. We also added the notion of what I call an entity template, which is dynamic data always had the notion of you could control your fields, but what if I actually wanted to have a a template for my actual object? And and I'll explain why you might want to do this. You might... Let's say I'm building a public-facing website, or even an internal-facing website, and if I'm logged in as a regular user, I get to see um, three or four fields of an object. So I might have a product for product, a product a view for everybody, and then I might have a product view for the administrator, which is going to show the sale price and how long the promotion goes and all those kinds of fields. And so the notion of having an entity template means that I can then, uh, in, in Dynamic Data 3.5, I would actually... Um, my my control was just the field level, and now I can actually create a template at the actual entity, entity level as, as well. And both of these things, the field templates and the uh, entity templates, have, uh, have kind of shown up in MVC2 as well.
2: Is that really about reuse more than anything? If I have a customer template, it's very easy to put it in multiple
3: places? That, that Basically, it's about reuse. So the, the right. issue is... Um, let's say I create this view of a product for a regular person and a view of a product for an admin. Um, I don't want to recreate that. If, if I might show that, that product object on seven pages. I don't want to create that view on each of those seven pages. I'm right. better off creating that template one time um, and sharing it between all seven pages. Sure. That was the same notion for field templates. When we, when we did field templates, it was the same kind of thing. You want to, on your page, go and create a, a template where you actually put a, a pop-up date time calendar and a validation control and do that on every single page where you show a date time or do you want to create a single field template for date time um, and use and share that between all those pages
1: Scott we're then, almost out of time but I just want to mention one more feature that I really like maybe you could talk a little bit about it is the web config file transformation
3: transformation or just or we should also talk about minification as well
1: yeah we we should um, all right go ahead
3: <laughs> so let me, let me, I'm looking a, at the clock here, but it's okay. Here. We
1: should talk about it. This is great stuff.
3: So obviously one of the things that uh, if you're a long-term ASP.NET customer, um, you'll note that I think as of 3.5 SP1, I think our web config was about 108 lines or 112 lines, something something in that in that ballpark. And that's been because as we've added new features, um, those features, are we've added the configuration to that, that web config file, from version to version to version. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we did in .NET 4 was we wanted to, wanted to make configuration easier. So we took uh, all that configuration and pushed it down into what, what I call root configuration. So there's a machine config file on your machine that uh, has your what we call your root web config. And we took all the common options like the AJAX and, and the routing and stuff like that and pushed them down all the way to the bottom. And the benefit of that is if you create a brand new empty website in in .NET 4, it'll be about six lines. Uh, The web config file will be about six lines long. Nice.
1: Very
2: nice. um,
3: uh, It's manageable, again, for the first time. Um, And it also allowed us to enable a bunch of features by default. Uh, I'm going to differ around a little bit, but we uh, we were able to take things like dynamic data, automatically include them in all the projects, routing include them in all the projects, uh, the new charting controls that we have in .NET 4, uh, are included in all the projects, meaning by that that uh, they're already they're already put in config, so you don't have to worry about you know adding any config entries to to enable those those uh, those particular features. And then now back to what you guys asked about, which I think was transformation. Yeah. Uh, and that's a that's a whole feature area that w- it would actually be great for you guys to to do a talk with Vishal from our uh, from the Web Tools team at some point and really focus on. This particular area around some of the VS enhancements that we made, but but the the web config transformation is uh, part of a, a new mechanism we have called deployment. So we've we've always had deployment in in Visual Studio uh, before, but the deployment's been uh, kind of kind of simple simplistic and kind of slow as well. So what you would do is say deploy my website to this FTP site, and it would slowly. Crank the the, uh, the website up page by page by page to the uh, server at the FTP site. The mm-hmm. negative of that is it's going to copy it up verbatim of what you have on your in your developer environment. Which means if your connection strings point to your development database, uh, if you have uh, your mail server configured to point to a local test database, I mean uh, mail server, uh, that that configuration is going to go up verbatim to your production server. And after you do that step, you would then have to go through and uh, manually fix it on the server. Um, so one of the cool parts of this new deployment mechanism that we have in .NET 4, uh, VS 2010, is now you can actually, uh, if, you're, if your remote server's got the MS deploy uh, installed on it, this deployment becomes really, really fast because what actually is going to happen is we're going to compress your entire website into, a, into an archive, ship the one file, the archive across the wire, and then it's going to expand on the other end um, so that process of, of deployment is much much faster and then part of this deployment process as well is we've we've added uh, uh, web config transformations which allows me to um, first off if I if I add add, add the uh, web deployment to my project I'll start having different versions of my files uh, where I can actually have uh, a release version of my config a debug version of my config and I can explain the rules on how those change from one 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 form to the other. The benefit for the de- developer, obviously, is suddenly I don't have to worry about any manual steps when I when I want to deploy my application. I can say deploy to my server, and it's going to deploy the to the server the right way with the server configuration going with it as well.
1: Excellent.
2: Yeah, that's always been the tricky bit—is moving that stuff around. It's just too easy to make mistakes.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think I, I'm. I can, I can only speak for myself, but you know, I've always in, in my in my career, I've always you know fallen back down to. I never used the previous support in VS because um, I didn't have enough control, so I always fell back down to using some batch files or, or, or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And
2: IIS has just made that easier now with PowerShell where I can just basically spin up anything and deploy. But you, you end up writing it yourself. Yep.
3: So now you'll be able to configure this stuff directly in VS, have VS do it, but at the same time, all this deployment stuff I, I'm talking about is part of something called MS Deploy. Uh, which lives outside of VS as well, which means even from your PowerShell command, you can run some of the MS Deploy stuff manually. So, yeah. so it's not like not like you're 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 forced to if you want to take advantage of these uh, of the features of MS Deploy, you're not forced to use VS or forced to you know press some button in VS and and pray that it goes the right way. You can still you know create your own scripts and and your own scripts could you know do things like turn the server down send the package up, turn the server back up, you know, all those yeah. kinds of things.
2: Well, and, it, and when I'm working in a big shop where I have real IT guys that have the final word in deployment, they're just not going to fire up Studio, right? They, right. They're yeah. just getting to love PowerShell.
3: So I, I agree. I think, you know, people; those people want control, and, you know, just to deploy your website, you're not going to fire up a, a huge IDE. You just want to run a, a deployment website.
2: No, I'm with you, but it's also, I don't want to have to force down in my devs all of this script practice so that we have a uniform process from development through QA to production. Yep. So to be actually mix the two together, that's a big step forward for me that we could, I don't know all the details yet. I just got a sense now that I got to go back and look at that and figure out what is studio, what parts of studio going to use, how am I use MS deploy as part of this to make it work all the way through.
3: Yeah, and as I said, I think you guys should, should do a talk, you know, with uh, Vishal from from the WebTools team at some point. He, he could spend a full hour just explaining all the scenarios and all the features that uh, surround this stuff. Yeah, it sounds like a whole other show.
1: It certainly does, which reminds us we're out of time now. Scott, thank you. This has been a great uh, a great romp through ASP.NET 4.0. And uh, we're at beta 2 now, right, as of this recording. Uh, any news on availability?
3: We did actually so we we're, we're definitely at beta two right now, um, and we did announce during the PDC time frame that I believe uh, we said that march twenty second was going to be the uh, RTM uh, release date and availability for vs 2010. That could still move, but I think I think that's the we're targeting that date. so
2: yeah, is there going to be another release before RTM then?
3: there's not a, there's not currently slated a, a public release uh, before RTM. So the beta two was the last public release. Um, we do have uh, some internal re- releases that we send to like big partners and stuff like that, but we're not doing right. any uh, public releases.
1: Okay. Well, I hope the twenty second stays the date because I'm playing at the launch <laughs> with my band.
3: <laughs> I, I can I, I can already tell you that uh, you're going to be amazed on on March twenty second because uh, VS has gotten a lot better even since beta two. Beta two was was pretty solid and it and it's gotten a lot better since then. So I, I think you're going to be really impressed by the uh, the final product.
1: I can't wait. It's been so long since we had a new base class library, and on top of that, we've got a WPF editor in, uh, you know, a WPF-based Visual Studio. Man, man, man. Good times. You can
3: now, you can now zoom in. I mean, that's one of the coolest features on the, on the WPF editor, is just being able to, you know, we didn't even go into VS features, but, you know, cool, cool VS features are you can actually undock a window from VS, and if you're in a multi-monitor setup, actually have, you know, one of your source windows on one monitor and one of your source windows oh, on another monitor.
1: Sweet. You know, I was doing a DNR TV with Sahil Richard just the other day, yes. and, and I said, hey, can you bump up the font in VS 2010? He goes, yeah, sure. And he goes, uh, where is it? Settings, options? I'm like, no, dude, mouse wheel, mouse wheel. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, whoa, that's awesome. Oh, well, it's awesome.
3: The mouse wheel stuff is, is awesome. I mean, you can sit in a, in a window and just zoom the window in. I mean, it's yeah. great for doing presentations and stuff.
1: Excellent. So. All right, Scott, thanks again. This has been awesome, and uh, I hope to see you. At, are you going to be at the launch?
3: I want- I'm going to be at Mix um, and the launch the week, is the week after. So I'm, I'm not sure. I think the, the launch is actually the week after Mix. I'm not sure right, I'll be at the right. launch.
1: Okay. Well, we'll see you next time anyway. Somewhere. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.